written on the wall in bold letters were those strange words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsin. And uh, they struck terror into the hearts of the nobles. They didn't even know what they meant, but it was a terrifying sight to look at that. And before we look at those words, I want to address why it was that uh, the wise men in verse 15 were not able to interpret these words. There are some who might look at the English and wonder, you know, that seems fairly straightforward. What was the problem? I mean, usually those wise men were shucksters to some degree, and they were able to put a spin on just about anything and turn it around to their benefit. Why did they not do that here? There may have been a number of reasons. Josephus suggests a couple Uh, it, It may have been just the fear of God. I think seeing that huge hand writing on the wall may have taken the sails out of their wind, the wind out of their sails, one of the two. Um, But there were ambiguities as well. Uh, For example, in the Aramaic, there were no vowels. Now think of reading the English language with no vowels. You could make out a sentence if it was in context, but uh, without the context, it could have been difficult. Instead of mene, it could have been uh, muno, mani. It could have been a number of different Aramaic words. And so there was that difficulty. But even if they knew the vowels, um, it, it could have been hard because the words themselves stood for three different weights or measures in the Persian Empire, starting from the largest one down to the smallest, uh, a mina, a shekel, and a half shekel. Now, what Daniel does is he interprets it by taking the verbal form of those words. And if you translate that, then it would be numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. And those three words, numbered, weighed, and divided, were a rebuke to Belshazzar who had rejected God's sovereignty. And uh, we're going to be seeing how those three words really sum up the lordship of God and his sovereignty. Now, before we get to that... I want to point out that we as Christians can sometimes need the uh, challenge of these words as well because we many times act as if God is not sovereign. I've heard this enough times that it shouldn't surprise me, but I got surprised again this past week when I heard someone saying that uh, the tornado that killed several people on the Texas border, that God's, God had nothing to do with that tornado. And it just surprises me people would hold to an attitude like that. I got an email this past week, I don't know who it was, that sent it to me, but he was trying to prove that God's hand is not involved at all in storms or disasters, and for sure not in the wars and the conflict that happen uh, in in various nations. Uh, What is a comfort to me, the doctrine of God's sovereignty was an absolute stumbling block to that person. And so I want to address uh, this whole subject of God's of God's sovereignty. I think most of you here, all of you here, would uh, probably avoid any kind of a bold statement like that. At least I hope you would. But when you look at the awful things that are happening in the world around us, and as I understand in your Sunday school class, there, there were a number of things like that that you were looking at, it may seem as if God's hand is not there. It may seem as if things are out of control. I want you to listen to this uh, one author's description of how out of control our world appears to be. He says, but who is regulating affairs on this earth today, God or the devil? Attempt to take a serious and comprehensive view of the world. What a scene of confusion and chaos confronts us on every side. Sin is rampant. Lawlessness abounds. Evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse, 2 Timothy 3.13. 
Today, everything appears to be out of joint. Thrones are creaking and tottering. Ancient dynasties are being overturned. Democracies are revolting. Civilization is a demonstration of failure. Instead of the world having been made safe for democracy, we have discovered that democracy is very unsafe for the world. Unrest, discontent, and lawlessness are rife everywhere, and none can say how soon a greater war will be set in motion. Statesmen are perplexed and staggered. Men's hearts are failing them for fear and for looking after those things that are coming on the earth. Luke twenty-one twenty-six. Do these things look as though God had full control? And I think we have to answer yes. Those are precisely the kinds of things that God says must happen when there is rebellion to his word. Let me read you some samples from Leviticus 25. God says, I will appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number. I will bring a sword against you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. I will lay your cities waste. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. You see, the very things that people use to prove that God is not sovereign or that things are out of control, God says, uh, he ascribes in his word to precisely his sovereign rule as a necessary consequence of his sovereign rule. Now, during the 14 years of Belshazzar's reign, it may have appeared as if God was not there. Where is God's hand in all of this? And yet this passage that we read assures us that all three elements of God's lordship were present. And if you can lay hold of these three truths, it will help you to stand up no matter what the world may throw against you. The first aspect of God's lordship is the presence of a plan. No plan, no lordship. Take a look at verse 26. This is the interpretation of each word. Menne. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. His kingdom was not numbered by chance, if chance could even do such a thing. Numbering really takes intelligence. It's not something by chance, but it says God numbered his kingdom. And to be numbering the days of his kingdom implies that he had started that long before Belshazzar got there because his kingdom started before then. Uh, It was really ultimately not Cyrus or Darius. And I should point out there's confusion uh, as to whether Darius and Cyrus are the same person, different names, or whether Darius was somebody that was appointed over Babylon by Cyrus, who, who was over everything. But it was not Cyrus or Darius who finished the kingdom. Before Cyrus had even come through those gates, God said he had finished the kingdom. The sand had run out on the hourglass. God no longer had a useful purpose for Babylon. And in case you think... God didn't have a use and a purpose for Babylon. I want you to turn to the first chapter of Daniel and verses 1 through 2. Just a brief reminder here. It says in verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, and we saw that God's timing there, again, was absolutely perfect, but he says the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God. He's saying God 
purposed the invasion of Israel and carrying Israel out. Now, I want you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And this is a passage that shows how God numbered the kingdom of Babylon. Uh, how God had set a specific number of days. And there are other passages in Jeremiah and elsewhere that speak about this. But look at Second Chronicles 36, and uh, let's begin at verse 20. <clears throat> it says, And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. What incredible words uh, those must have been. That was the first year of, uh, of um, uh, Darius and of Cyrus's reign that this happened. And you can see why Daniel had to be in his position. God used Daniel to stir up the heart of Cyrus to do this. And he probably used the book of Isaiah, which specifically, many years before Cyrus was even around, specifically named Cyrus, prophesied everything that was going to happen, how he was going to take over Babylon, and how Cyrus was going to build a temple for Jehovah. And that's, I think, where the command uh, there came from. But uh, you can see here that uh, all of the details uh, of Cyrus's reign were numbered. After Chronicles comes Ezra. And Ezra was return of God's people. Now let me just summarize the transition between those chapters. What appeared to be just more trouble, what appeared to be things in chaos, uh, what appeared to be uh, things that didn't make any sense proved in hindsight to be God's perfect plan being carried out. And during the years, 14 years of Belshazzar, people were being groomed for later purposes. Chapter 10 talks about the spiritual warfare that they were in. People were being put into positions where they could be used, and God was orchestrating good out of the evil that was intended by Satan and Belshazzar. You see, without a plan that includes all of the details, the big ones and the little ones, God would not be Lord. God would not be able to guarantee that all things work together for the good of those who love him. And I don't want you to think it's just uh, Babylon that was numbered. Later on in the book, Daniel shows that the next kingdom, Persia, was numbered, and Greece was numbered, and, and, and Rome was numbered. I want you to turn with me to Acts 17 and verse 26. says, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Every nation on the earth. 
That means that America has its pre-appointed boundaries and its pre-appointed times. Same is true of Canada, of Kyrgyzstan, of Eritrea, of any country that may be out there. The perfection of God's plan includes it all. And that can help us when we go into missions. In trusting God, it can help us when we face tyrants like Belshazzar. Now, we don't have any idea, at least I don't, maybe some of you do, of what purpose God may have in the, in the millennium bug, the year 2000 uh, bug. I, I don't know, but no detail like that is too small for God's plan. It fits, fits perfectly at exactly the right time. God has orchestrated that all together. The same is true of our individual lives. God not only numbers nations, he numbers and he orders the days of your life. And Christ said, even the number of hairs you have on your head at any given time is a part of his plan. And so if your receding hairline is even a part of God's plan, you know everything has to be encompassed in God's plan. Now, sometimes it's much more visible than at other times, but it's always there. Some of you may remember uh, the huge explosion at Westside Baptist Church in um, Beatrice, Nebraska. Uh, I don't remember it. I was uh, not even born then. It was back in March 1, 1950, but it was in the news. And at 7.30, they had choir practice, but at 7.25 was when the building blew up. There was a gas leak. The, the roof caved in, walls caved in. It was just a disaster area. And the report on that was just amazed at the coincidences that had happened. Never before in the history of that church had everyone been late, but here's how they described how everyone was late on this particular night. The pastor went home for a quick supper, was ready to return with his wife and daughter when it was discovered the daughter's dress was soiled and needed a change, which in turn must first be ironed. And, uh, you know, if you were that, that husband, you would probably, ah, oh, we're going to be late. Come on, come on. We got to get going. And you're probably frustrated, you know, and the traffic's going slow and you're, you, you know, God's timing is just not working out well. But the, the, the account goes on. High school sophomore Ladona had trouble with her geometry problems and had to stay to finish the problem. Usually she would always be early for rehearsal. Two sisters were ready to go to the church, but the car wouldn't start. They called up the geometry girl to pick them up. Well, she couldn't pick them up right away. Mrs. Schuster, with a small daughter, normally would arrive at 7.20, but that night her old mother needed her, and so she dropped by her mother's. A lathe operated wanted to stop putting off an important letter. I didn't know why, he said, and was late. Stenographer Joyce Black, feeling just plain old lazy, stayed until the last possible minute. Then she was ready to go when it happened. Machinist Harry Ohl was going to take his two boys to choir practice since his wife was away, but somehow started talking with someone. When he looked at his watch, it was already too late. Pianist Marilyn Paul decided to come one half hour earlier, but after supper she uh, ex yeah one half hour earlier, but after supper she fell asleep and arrived barely on time, which was five minutes after the explosion. Choir director and the mother of the pianist, Mrs. Paul, was late due to her daughter who had just been sleeping. Uh, the one we described. She had tried unsuccessfully to wake her up before. Two high school girls usually go together, but one was listening to the 7 to 7.30 radio program, and that evening broke their usual habit of promptness in order to listen to the end. Now, I don't want those of you who are always late to meetings to be using that as an excuse. I could have picked other examples, but I picked that one deliberately to show that God's plan even includes... Things like our tardiness, uh, irresponsibility, yes, even sin. Now, God is not the author of sin. He does not sin. He does not cause others to sin. And yet he includes sin in his plan. 
Was not the crucifixion the greatest sin in all of human history? It was. And every detail of that crucifixion was in his plan. God did not, God did not crucify the Son in the sense of causing people to do it. They did it of their own desires. And yet God orchestrated things to overrule the evil and he intended good. You look at the selling of Joseph into Egypt. Joseph understood God's sovereignty. In the Psalms, it says God sent Joseph into Egypt. And Joseph said, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Now, some people just do not gain comfort, but you need to learn to gain comfort from the fact God is not taken by surprise. He has a perfect plan that encompasses everything, and if he did not, he would not be Lord. Unless God had a perfect plan, he could not turn what unbelievers term a tragedy into something that makes his people triumph. He could not guarantee that Romans 8, 28 is true. Now, there are many people who resist God's plan. In the Bible, it's called predestination. They don't like the thought of their, themselves not being in control. But if you really think about it, we are not in control of anything. Even if chance uh, governed the universe, chance can't govern anything. It takes a rational being to do that. But even if chance did govern the universe, you would not be in control. But if a wise, loving, powerful God controls everything and has planned everything, it brings comfort to our hearts. And I think in terms of Daniel's message later on in this book, this ought to be a foundational comfort to us because Daniel promises that one day every humanistic kingdom will be numbered and they will all bow down before the Lord and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of his Christ. And every nation will be filled with righteousness. The kingdom of Christ is numbered. There is a certainty to everything that is happening in history, and that ought to bring us real joy. The second aspect of lordship is authority. God not only has a plan, but he has the right to have a plan. He has the right to tell you what to do. He has the right to change this and to change that, to impose his law and to bring his sanctions against others. In other words, he has the right or the authority to be a lord. Take a look at verse 27. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Now, the illustration that's used there is one of justice. You've probably seen that in the in some courtrooms here in uh, Lincoln. You can see it down here in the courthouse. A balance, uh, uh, scales that are balances, uh, and you're weighed against righteousness. You know, if your deeds are bad, you'll go down and you'll get the axe. So it's that, that concept of being a just measure. Well, God says that he not only judges and weighs our deeds, he judges and weighs our thoughts and our motives. In Proverbs 16, verse 2, it says, All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Now, if God is over all, and he's not under any standard, he is the standard, that means that God is the one, and he alone, who can judge our consciences, but he has the right to call into question what we do. He has the right to tell us to change our behavior. There's many ways in which we deny this aspect of God's lordship. Really, any time we pick and choose which laws of God we're going to honor and which ones we're going to ignore, whatever the excuse might be, what we are doing is we are rejecting God's lordship. And I think there are tendencies even in this congregation to do exactly that. Take the Sabbath, for example. I think there is no other doctrine I've gotten more grief on than preaching on the Sabbath. It's an area that our culture doesn't like to be preached on. 
And uh, the reason is, I think, ultimately, people want to be their own bosses. They don't want God to tell them what to do. And ultimately, your argument is not with me, it is with God. And what I want to do, if you have an argument on the Sabbath, and you think, well, this is a legalistic law, I want you to read Jeremiah chapter 17, and forget about my interpretation. I want you to interpret that passage and weigh yourself in that scale, because God is already weighing you in the scale. And I want you to come out of that, making yourself clean with the Lord on the Sabbath. I don't see how you can get around it. Just read Jeremiah 17. Another thing I've gotten grief on in preaching has been preaching on politics. There are a lot of people who think that uh, ought not to preach on politics. Well, I have a habit of uh, preaching on things people say I shouldn't be preaching on because that's exactly the areas where God's lordship is being challenged and where people need to be brought up front before the Lord. Uh, this book is full of challenges to every area of life, including politics. We've been preaching through the book of Daniel because this is an area which is so lacking in our culture, and it needs to be addressed. Paul says, I have not avoided declaring to you the whole counsel of God, and this king was being weighed in the balances. Why? Because that king was responsible to God's word. That king was to be judged according to God's word. And so we really ought not to be saying we can't preach on this or that because we're saying God's authority does not extend that far. God is not Lord if we limit his authority. I do want to address the question of why Belshazzar was not judged earlier. This says he was weighed in the balances and found wanting, but the question is, well, what about two years before? I mean, he would have been found wanting seven years before, 14 years before. Why did he wait until this time to bring his judgment? Well, to me, this is a real encouraging doctrine. Sometimes it can be frustrating, but really it ought to be an encouragement. And it is this, that any of God's attributes are consistent with and in balance with all of the rest of God's character. And in this case, his justice, by which this king was all through these years being weighed and was being found to be wanting, was in balance with God's patience. Praise God for his patience in our lives. Praise God for his patience with the nations. In Jeremiah 18, uh, it points out that God gives plenty of opportunities for nations to repent. He says, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. In other words, we shouldn't be fatalistic. Yes, God has predestination. He has a plan, but we ought not to be approaching it in a fatalistic way. God says our actions are significant. And yes, he's the one who gives repentance. But at the point of repentance... God says there is a relenting from judgment. You look at Nineveh as a classic example. Here was a nation that was weighed in the balances and found wanting, was headed toward judgment, and they repented. And according to Christ in the Gospels, their repentance was a genuine repentance. They were saved. We're going to see the Ninevites of that generation in heaven, according to Christ. And so God's justice was not inconsistent with his mercy and his patience. Why? Because Christ bore the judgment that Nineveh deserved in their place. He bore it in their place. And so justice and mercy were uh, really uh, brought together. But what's true of a nation is just as true of us as individuals. It's not just nations that are weighed in the balances. Scripture says every one of us is. We're going to be weighed 
And we have already been weighed, but on Judgment Day, we're going to be facing the consequences for every sinful deed, every sinful thought, every sinful motive. And uh, God's justice does not let anything off the hook. He would cease to be a holy God. He would cease to be a just judge if he just swept our sins under the carpet and says, oh, well, I won't worry about those sins. Uh, You know, they're not that bad. Uh, There are people who uh, sometimes think that they're not so bad. They don't see themselves in the light of God's holiness. And uh, they say, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. I've given this illustration several times before, the rotten egg illustration, but let me give it to you again. Scripture says, even our good deeds stink. Uh, That even our good deeds are as filthy rags. And to think that our good deeds will outweigh our bad deeds is about this silly. It's to say, I'm going to make an omelet for some company, and I've got ten good eggs and two bad eggs that are really slimy and and, uh, green and putrid. But the good eggs, they'll outweigh the bad ones. We'll just mix them all together and serve it to company. You know that that will not be fit for company to eat. And in the same way, our lives are unfit to offer up to God because of the sins that are pervading our being. They're unfit to offer to God, which makes every one of us in a big pickle, in a big fix, except for one fact. God solved the problem of throwing the book at us in the person of Jesus Christ. Scripture says that God the Son came down in human flesh and he lived a perfect life so that he could credit to us his righteousness. And he took our sins in our place. The the Scripture indicates that the sins that we have separate us from God. God would cease to be a holy God if he embraced us to himself and said, doesn't matter about your sin, or or if he failed to judge us. He He would become a sinner. And there's a scripture that shows the solution. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ became sin for us. He bore every sin that we have committed. And God poured out his wrath upon Christ. And when he did so, he poured it upon us. It was a true substitution. Christ in turn gave us his righteousness so God can embrace us to himself. And if you are one of those who has repented of your sins, you've cast them upon the Lord and you said, Lord, I receive from you your righteousness. When you are weighed in the balances, you will be seen as perfect, as righteous because of what Christ has done. Absolutely perfect in Christ. And what is true of individuals is true of nations. That's one of the reasons why I don't think it's enough to be talking about external policy of a nation. We need to be preaching the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be praying and hoping that our nation will come to Christ because ultimately that is the only thing that will avert judgment in America as if Christ bears the judgment that America deserves. So God's lordship talks about his authority, his right to judge us, his right to impose law, his right to be making changes in our lives. The last word points to his providence. Not just the plan and his authority and right to impose that, but verse 28, his providence. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, I want you to notice the application. Scripture says that not even a sparrow can fall to the ground without your father. Not even a sparrow. Not even an insignificant sparrow. 
And when it comes to kingdoms rising and falling, so many stories could be told of how the big things and the little things all weld together in such an important way. Uh, the book of Esther, I think, is a great example. Uh, the word God does not appear in that book, but you see God's hand all through the book. And if you were living in the time of Esther, you might have wondered, where is the hand of God? But looking in hindsight, we realize not one tiny detail in that story could change without messing up the whole story. God's providence. It is a book on providence. Benjamin Franklin tells the story of how a failure to put a little nail in a horse's shoe uh, cost one of the kings of England his kingdom when in the midst of battle the horse threw the shoe. Providence. I've told you before the story of how King Henry VIII sought to patch up his quarrel with the Vatican. And uh, uh, it looked like Protestantism was going to come under persecution in England and uh, was coming in jeopardy. Well, God changed that around because along with the Earl of Wiltshire, who went to the Pope to patch things up, he brought his dog. And when the Pope stuck out his toe for uh, the Earl to kick, I mean to kiss, the dog thought he was going to get kicked. And so he bit the Pope, and that infuriated the guards who killed the dog, and that infuriated the Earl of Wiltshire, who refused to go through the proceedings. And so you could say there's a sense in which the Protestant Reformation of England was saved through the bite of a dog. But that's God's providence. In all of the little details of life, he wraps those things together. And so though we would never want to deny that this world is evil, it is filled with evil, it is filled with disasters. We would never want to say there is a tragedy for a Christian. We would never want to say that God does not reign as Lord over all events in history. He has a plan. He has the authority to carry that out, and he has the power and the providence to carry it out as well. If any of you have been praying through the book, Strongholds of the 1040 Window, you will know that we, uh, that Christians are living in a period of history uh, that is unprecedented in terms of being distressing and dangerous for Christians, unprecedented number of martyrdoms and persecutions. And a lot of people will take those statistics to try to prove that we're living at the end of history, that things are getting worse and worse, that there's disaster, everything's out of control. And yet that same book, through the same statistics, points out, when you look at the flip side of things, that we are living in the most exciting time in the last 2,000 years, that the last 10 years alone, there has been a greater advance of Christianity than any other period in history. It's no wonder there's such a backlash from Satan. <clears throat> Dickens begins one story by saying it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And I think Daniel 5, in a sense, was the worst of times and the best of times. It was the worst of times and that Daniel didn't know if he was going to lose his life with Belshazzar that evening. He didn't know what was happening. Everything was in a turmoil. It could have been very easy to become anxious, and yet it was the best of times because those very events ushered in in that year the decree of Cyrus that the Israelites could go back to Egypt, uh, go back to Israel. Didn't want to go back to Egypt. Back to Israel. And so both could be true because of God's overruling providence. And when you're tempted to think that life is out of control, I want you to remember these three words. God has a plan. He has the authority, all the authority that is needed, and he has the providential uh, presence in history that can order and secure that plan. May we glorify him by trusting and submitting to his sovereignty. Amen.